The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Today my guest is private investigator Philip Becknell. I'm delighted to have him. He's taken on... The unusual task of striving to understand and compare licensing laws of the European Union, along with how Europe regulates, collects, and sells information. So he's already written one book, and we'll talk about that, and now he's tackling the same thing in the European realm. So I've asked Phil to the show today to discuss his experiences in conducting his research and what what he's found. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you so so much for having me. I just want to correct one thing. I've actually written two books. I wrote uh, my yeah. first book was the introduction to conducting private investigations, and the second book was actually the the, the principles of investigative documentation. Okay, all right. Uh, let's come back to that because um, I want to talk more about that. So, but first of all, Bill, tell us how you how came about that you became a licensed private investigator. Uh, so initially, going way back. Way back. Way back. Um, I started out doing um, Criminal Justice Act investigations for indigent criminal defendants in D.C. Um, at, at a time when that w- wasn't really regulated, there, there's a process of getting uh, sort of getting appointed by lawyers and you get paid through a voucher system in the courts. And I started out doing that in 1999. Um, did that for a couple years before um, doing what I doing civil cases and, and, and more private cases. Mm-hmm. And and how did it come about that you got in this field? Um, I mean, I, I fell backwards into that aspect of it. I, I graduated from um, undergraduate in 1999 and had a friend who went on a blind date with a guy who owned a DI business, and they didn't work out as a couple, um, <laughs> but she, she ended up taking a few of his cases for his for his uh, firm and did, so was doing these CJA cases through this firm and she didn't really like it very much but she had already um, committed to doing them um, and so when she decided that she wanted out I was like yeah you know sure I'll do it I'm, I'm right out of college I don't really have anything else going on so I, do <laughs> I don't have anything and, to do <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything better to do so, so those two you know two cases turned into five cases and five cases turned into ten cases and the rest you know just, just kept bullet balloon from there Interesting. Well, you, your uh, bachelor's in, is in anthropology, right? So that's that's kind of connected a little bit. 
you know, it is connected. I always tell people that I think anthropology is investigating. I mean, I, I really wanted to be an archaeologist at the time and a writer. I mean, that, that was my main thing was I've always wanted to write, and particularly I always wanted to write fiction. So after I graduated from school, I spent some time traveling um, internationally and, and working on a novel that wasn't very good, and I decided that I needed more life experience before I could <laughs> take something like that on. So the writing didn't work out for me, at least not the fiction writing, but... Um, but then this opportunity came about, and so I started investigating, and I was like, wow, actually, you know, what, what better life experience than working on these, these cases in D.C.? It really opened up my eyes to a whole other world. Exactly. That's really interesting. I mean, what, what more life experiences can you get other than doing criminal defense, right? Exactly, right. Yeah, and you get exposed get to stuff that you never, yeah. you know, you just read about. Um, exactly. You meet people you'd never meet, and uh, you find out about things you just can't even imagine. Yep, Absolutely. And then, so was it because of that that you got your master's in criminal justice? Yeah, I actually got my master's much later. That was in 2006. Um, I had been doing investigations for, you know, the seven years. Um, and I just thought, I mean, I, I've always had sort of, um, in the U.S., a lot, of investi- a lot of private investigators come from law enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them are, you know, do that and then they retire. And, um, you yeah, know, I, I think I got the master's because I sort of had a... Um, uh, an inferiority complex, you know, with regard to my background. I mean, I, I could say, well, you know, I've been doing investigations for seven years, but I didn't have this. I didn't have this other thing I could point to. I couldn't say, oh, yeah, I was also a police officer for fifteen years, or mm-hmm. whatever. And so I think you know, I went and got the master's because it was something I could point to to say, well, here, I actually accomplished this too. And, and that opened up other doors, so that was good. And really, okay, uh, what what kind of other doors did it open up? Um, well, I mean, the master's allowed me to teach, um, so I started teaching some undergraduate courses in criminal justice, which taught me um, a whole bunch of stuff I didn't know about that. I mean, the best way to learn about, um, right. <laughs> <It's a team. laughs> you know, about the you know constitutional law and criminal procedure and all those things um, is really pro- to teach about. That's <laughs> probably actually scary for students to listen to, to <laughs> somebody that learns how to uh, learns about the subject when they're teaching it. <laughs> well, you know, I think when you're a student, you learn what you have to learn. You know? Right. You have, but when you when you learn when you're a teacher, you have to you have to think of it. You have to know every uh, question that might come up. You have to plan for every contingency. So it's actually a much more uh, rigorous way of studying and learning things. Exactly. Interesting. So, so how long did you do criminal defense? Um, I got. I stopped. Well, so I did. I did CJA cases for a couple years. I got into doing um, federal CJA cases for a couple years after that. So there were about four years there, which was when, when that was mostly what I did. And then around that time was when I formed the company that I'm in now, which is Denault Beckham Well and Investigative Group. So I met up with my partners um, from from this firm. And we started this company. And around that time, um, this firm was really not so much about criminal defense work. We we got a, a pretty good um, contract with with a large uh, plaintiff employment firm, and so that really was the focus of my job over the last um, over the last over the next several years. Um, and then more recently, in the last two or three years, I've actually gotten back into doing uh, defense work, but not in D.C. I'm doing. Um, mostly capital murder cases in Virginia. So I take on about one or two of those a year. And um, and then my firm still is mostly civil stuff, I mean, a lot of employment, lit- employment litigation, some personal injury cases, and that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. 
And and you're licensed in a whole bunch of places. What are those? Um, we're licensed in uh, D.C., Virginia, Maryland, um, West Virginia, and California. Oh, you're, you're licensed in California now, too? Well, my partner, California, as you know, um, is kind of a weird place because we're an LLC. <laughs> so <laughs> California doesn't allow for licenses in uh, LLC. So my business partner, Ben Denault, who actually lives in London, is licensed in California. So I, as, I, as I understand it, and you can probably correct me, it, it's kind of one of these weird things where uh, if I'm working under his um, direction, then you know, then it's okay. I mean, I think it's because I'm a partner, that's mm-hmm. a little bit more of a gray area, but certainly our employees are allowed to go to California. It's absolutely, that, that is true. And, and by the way, just as an aside, Phil, there is a bill going forward this year to allow investigative agencies to become LLCs. Oh, great. So it may change, it may change how you do it. Yeah, right. Well, I don't, I don't get to go to California as much as I'd like to. Um, I, I was born there. I don't know if you knew that. But, um, I didn't know that. It, it's... It's one of my favorite places. I, I, I was born in San Francisco, and I grew up were in you really? County. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, so we'll be, we'll be right back with private investigator Phil Becknell. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Private investigator Phil Becknell is here with me today to talk about Actually, all kinds of things, but mainly we're going to be talking about the comparison of laws across the country and the books he's written. So um, I know you've, you have been published in a lot of, um, you know, like Westlaw Journal and Law 360 and things like that, but talk about how you 
did your first book. Why did you Why did you decide that it was necessary to have the book that you wrote the first time? And, and again, what was the name of that? Uh, well, it was so. It was originally published as as Private Investigator Entry Level O two E, which I know doesn't mean much to the people who aren't outside of Virginia. Um, that that's that's the name of the course that's required of all investigators in Virginia. I see. And and so the genesis for the book was that I started teaching that course mainly to my own employees, but also opening it up to other other people from the outside who were interested in being PIs in Virginia. And so I taught that course for a, about a year and a half or so. And this was concurrent with the time frame when I was, after I got my master's and was doing a, a teaching undergraduates. Um, mm. And so it struck me that you know, here I am, I'm you know, going to teach these classes at night to undergraduate students and I'm given textbooks and material to support the course. And, and in Virginia, there, there wasn't a textbook that covered all the things that the, um, that the state wanted you to cover. And so I thought, well, gee, somebody should actually write that, you know, somebody should write that book. Um, and so after teaching the course for well, a couple times, I started compiling all the stuff that I was teaching, and, and, and that essentially um, became, became the, 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 my first book. And then it was, it was subsequently, it was um, republished in the second edition, but I changed the name of it because I, I opened it up to not just uh, the laws of, of Virginia, but, but to have a, a summary of the laws of all PI laws in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so at that time it became, um, it was published as Private Investigator, I'm sorry, Introduction to Conducting Private Investigations. And that was just done last year. Yeah, that came out last um, last summer. Okay. Okay, and so, but that was a, that's a huge job. I can't, I can't <laughs> It was a huge job. Now, <laughs> I should say, you know, uh, I, I didn't. Uh, right, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuances to to uh, to to everybody's laws, and um, you know, I didn't write a chapter on each one of them because that would have been that would have been a very big project. Um, but what I tried to do was divide them up into into sort of into sort of categories of states that have similar laws. In other words, I mean, there's there's some states that don't have any law, you know, any PI licensing regulations, at least not at state level. And there's some states that only require background checks, and then there's some that have some sort of experience requirement, and then there's ones with exams, and then there's ones with training requirements. So if you divide them up in those categories, it becomes a little bit more manageable. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Now, I know that you're also uh, past president of the Private Investigators Association of Virginia. I'm sure that credential kind of helped you get, you know, have the creds to gather the information too as you're going around talking to people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, right. So I was the president of Piala f- uh, for two years. I just stepped down this last October. Um, and yeah, I mean, and that's it's helped me. It helped me with that certainly. Another thing that helped me a lot was NCISS, was the National Council of Investigative and Security Specialists, and, and the ability to email people on the listserv and ask them about their licensing laws and ask them to refer me to the sources and stuff. Sure. Um, and so that was a really big thing too. But certainly, yeah, being being in the industry and being somebody who, uh, who people know um, has helped me a lot. And that also, by the way, helped me quite a bit in Europe as well. I'm sure. Yeah. So, and and that's one of the reasons we're talking today is because you just came back from not too long ago from a trip to Europe, and your your new book, you're going to try to compare the licensing laws there. Are you are you going to try to compare them to the United States or just a compilation of the laws in Europe? 
Well, no, I mean, I, I'm, it's, it's, I'm looking at more than just the licensing laws in Europe. Um, I, and it's a, it's a work in progress, I should say. I mean, it's, a, it's something I'm working on. I did make a trip um, to Europe um, last December and got to visit several different countries and interview a bunch of different um, really great investigators from different places to talk about their laws and stuff. And, and I think one component of it certainly is the licensing laws, um, which you know are different, um, very different from the U.S. and also very different from country to country. Um, but but also to look at this whole the the whole um, the, the the to look at privacy in Europe in general and how that affects um, private investigators' ability to gather information in Europe, because that is that is something that is really quite night and day between between the EU and the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and we all know that that's a that's a very hot issue today. No matter where you are, whether you're in Europe or or even you know Asia, Australia, and certainly in the United States, because we deal with it all the time. So, what kind of differences did you find? Well, the major difference between the Europe between Europe and the United States is is, is really a philosophical difference, the, and that is that in in the EU, um, following their Data Protection Directive, which was passed in 1995, um, people, citizens of the EU, in theory, own their own information. So, mm-hmm. in in the U.S., you know, privacy is really based on what your what your reasonable expectation of privacy is. Um, and once you give out up your information voluntarily, there's not really much that controls that information um, that, that that regulates that information, with the exceptions of you know, health records and some financial records and specific types of information. But in the EU, um, really, in, in theory, you, you own all of your information, which has pretty big ramifications across the board and pretty mm-hmm. much any way you look at it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, we all know, I guess probably the world knows now, that information is collected and sold. Right. And that information in itself has a value to people that want to purchase it. Right. And and let's talk about how that information is used often. Well, so, I mean, obviously you you're, you're, you and your guests and, and investigators everywhere kind of know the reasons why they do the work that they do. Um, and we have, we get hired by people who, who hire us for different purposes, and our cases are all different. So you could take a criminal defense case. Um, I had a, uh, I had a, defense case. Uh, one of the earlier federal uh, CJA cases I did was a capital murder case that was um, uh, charged in D.C., which was a guy who was a Rwandan expatriate who was charged with killing some Americans in Uganda in 1999. And the interesting thing about this case was that the the witnesses in the case um, was a place where, one of the only places in the world where you can go to see mountain gorillas. Where so you can go what? I'm sorry. You can go see mountain gorillas. So mountain gorillas okay. are endangered yeah. species, and people go to out to, they trek out to the forest and they look out. And it's um so this place in, in Uganda is one of the few places where you can go to do that. Well, um, so there are tourists from all over the world who are who are at this camp where this alleged crime happened, and 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 then after the crime, of course, they all go home. And so then a couple years later, uh, the defendant who I I was working for his lawyers is is extradited to D.C. And uh, faces these capital murder charges, and and my job was to, I mean, among other things, to find these witnesses and talk to them about what happened. 
And one of the things that, that, that struck me right off was that, okay, the, the simple task of finding a witness um, in the U.S. Is, is a really different task than finding a witness in England or France or Sweden mm-hmm. or somewhere else because their laws are all different. So um, I have the same purpose to find that information. I mean, there's, you know, and, and I would think that most people would agree that that's a legitimate purpose, that you want to you know, find witnesses, gather information, and in this case, you know, look for exculpatory information that might be the difference between this person's life or death. And, and yet the information, because of the way that it's regulated, um, come, come, it, it creates very different results for the investigations in all those different places. Um, and so I think that relates to your, your question. That, yeah, absolutely. And, and you yeah. know, Phil, we have, um, we have lots of listeners that, uh, have, that really have nothing to do with private investigations, so they might not know, you know, why we gather information or, or uh, what, our, what our purposes are. And it's often, as you say, to locate a witness, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's on a, uh, a criminal case, a uh, capital murder case, uh, certainly life is at stake, or a civil case where maybe it's, uh, uh, say, it's a sexual harassment case, and it, and it goes back something like 10 years. Right. And so, and, yeah. And I guess the, di- the difference is, so it, it comes from where does that information come from that you use to find that witness or to get that piece of information that you need for your investigation. And, of course, it's collected, right? So it's collected from you when you um, you go to a supermarket and you get one of these one of these uh, discount cards, you know, and you give them your information. Well, you've voluntarily given them your information, and that information, um, you should know it, but even if you don't know it, it's, it's still sold, and it's sold to marketers who try to sell you stuff. And sometimes that information, um, if you're a witness to a crime or you know, a defendant in a case or something like that, might get sold to an investigative company that then uses it as part of their investigation. And so that's kind of the way things work in the U.S. I mean, that's, that's one way that things work in the U.S. Right, right. Um, but in the EU, um, that collection of information stops at at the point of at the point of collection. So there's there are laws that stringently regulate how information could be could be sold between between different parties. And so there's no there's in theory nothing in the EU like a data broker that can make that information available to an investigation. And so the big question, the thing that I really wanted to answer was, well, how how do you how do you do an investigation? Right. Um, and and what's the answer to that? <laughs> uh, well, the answer is that it's it's complicated. Um, there's there, one of the different one of the other differences, I guess, one of the similarities out of this is that despite the fact that there are great differences between the, the theories of of, um, of privacy in the EU and the US, the the um, the enforcement isn't really there in the EU. And so, although there are all these laws that say you have to do X, Y, and Z, there really isn't um, a watchdog that's equivalent to the FTC, for example, to, that will clamp down on you if you violate them. Hmm. And so what ends up happening is, I mean, a few different things happen. Um, if you need the information, well, let's take a background check. Right. Um, but just a simple background check, an employment background check, um, which, you know, most people in the U.S. would agree that that's a legitimate, you know, fair reason to do. You know, you, you hire somebody, you have a right to know, to some extent, um, what their criminal background is. I know that there's you know, there's there's some talk about how far back that should go and what should mm-hmm. be used and what shouldn't be used. But in general, people agree with that it, it's okay. And um, in Europe, at least in the countries that I've looked at so far, um, criminal records aren't aren't public at all. So, right. In the UK, for example, um, there isn't 
really a mechanism for getting a criminal record. There's a law that's attached to to the Data Protection Act that says that you can get access to, um, you can can do a a criminal background check, which is called a CRB check there, if it's related to a criminal investigation. But to get somebody to approve that is like is like um, moving a mountain, and so in practice, you can't you can't really do a criminal background check in the UK. Okay, and the same Phil, is, excuse me a second, Phil. We need can we t- interrupt for a second and take another break because yeah. this is really good information. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Back. Um, you were just saying, uh, talking about getting criminal records in the U.K. and, and the, the restrictions on those can... Can you be a little? Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So, um, you, in theory, you can get criminal records for a, if it's for a criminal investigation. Um, there's a mechanism for doing that. You pay a, a fee, and you have to wait a certain amount of time. But but the reality is is that is that those applications are are general well, are almost universally turned down. So although there's a mechanism for it, there's no there's no there's no real way to do it. And, and the same is true in, in, in France and Italy and Spain and probably other places too, mm-hmm. where, I mean, in France and Spain, for example, um, the records are completely, are completely off limits. I mean, you can't, there's, there is no, no, no way to get a criminal record on anybody. In France, you can request, like if, if it's for a job interview, you can request somebody to produce their own uh, criminal record, which is called a Casio Judiciaire. It's called a what? Cassio Judiciaire. Okay. 
background check, and in it, it um, it will show convictions, but it will only show convictions in the event that there was actually a, a sentence in prison of more than three years. Okay. So misdemeanors or anything under three years aren't going to show up on somebody's background check, and, and even you know even if you were were able to get them to produce it themselves. So it's you know the, those records just practically aren't available in Europe, at least in the places I look. Well, you know, this begs the question for me, and you may not be able to answer this, but I'll just throw it out there. So how do companies in Europe protect themselves? Um, I mean, I think in some instances you might, you might ask, you know, in France, you might ask somebody to produce that, and at least, you know, they didn't, they didn't kill anybody, I guess. Um, so there's some protection there. And I, and I think you could, you could probably do similar things in, in other countries where, you, where the, the background check is essentially self-produced. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, there are still investigators who are doing background checks in Europe. Um, but they're doing it without access to, to criminal records. Okay. And they're, and they're doing that in a couple of different ways. And one, one way is, is that if, you know, if you, if you look in newspapers, for example, sometimes you'll get, um, there'll be stories about people who are arrested. Um, you get, um, you could ask, you know, some of these smaller uh, towns um, or you know, villages in different places, you can go and, and you could talk to people there about, you know, I'm going to go to the pub and ask them um, about somebody's general character and about their family yeah. and what, you know, what you know about them. And so there's a way generally of getting information about people that's very informal. Um, okay. And I think, I think the problem with that, and, and one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book was that um, in, in my investigations, and I'm sure in yours too, you know, I'm pretty exact with the information that I that I provide to my clients. You know, I, I, it would never occur to me to to put a rumor in a report if right. I couldn't substantiate it. And and to me, I think that that um, it really creates an environment where where people are more more likely to be. I mean, the, the laws are obviously meant to protect protect people's privacy and to prevent discrimination. Um, but I think that I think that if um, by making the process by, by curtailing the access to the records, you're really creating an environment where hmm. uh, discrimination is more likely. Yeah, it takes the, it's the opposite effect. And, right. it, and this is kind of the, you know, the old gumshoe way of conducting investigations where you're going around talking to people and gathering negative information or positive information right. from small village to small village. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and I don't, I don't want to make anybody appear. I, I, the people that I talked to there were, were some of the, the smartest, um, most... Um, uh, creative investigators I've ever met, I and mean, I heard some really great stories about how people were able to to um, to legally get around some of these laws, I mean, and, and illegally too. Um, but um, so I don't, I don't want to make anybody appear right. like a, like a well, village idiot. But yeah. but uh, but the, the fact is that they are hampered by the laws. I mean, there really isn't any question about that. Interesting. What other kinds of things? I mean, so we've talked about like criminal records and doing background checks, um, are there other obstacles for, for different kinds of things that you ran into? Yeah, well, the other one, so, I mean, if you, if you think about the logical, uh, if somebody owns information about themselves, um, the other sort of, there's some sort of absurd, uh, I think, absurd uh, outcomes from that when you think about it from an investigator standpoint. Um, one of the things is that if they own their the information that's collected about them. So, investigative agencies generally have to have to 
on top of getting their licenses, like we in, in the U.S., we have to get a license in the jurisdictions where we work, and that's mm-hmm. true there too. Um, but they also generally have to uh, register with us with the data protection agency um, to state that they're to, to acknowledge that they're collecting people's information. So when you do investigations on your subject, you're collecting information about them. Mm-hmm. Therefore, your terms different in different places, but you're essentially a collector of information. And what that, does that um, accomplish, Phil? What does it accomplish to register with the Data Protection Agency? Um, it accomplishes, well, that's an interesting thing. So you're, um, it, it just, it, it, it brings you under their regulations. So it, it basically, it tells them that it's the same reason why you get licensed, why you have to get licensed. I mean, it, I, which is another fair question. Why do you have to get licensed? Well, you know, there's, um, I, I think that the answer to that is that um, it, in a very basic way, you know, it, it brings them under, it puts them on your radar. It puts mm-hmm. you on their radar, and and it enables them to to make sure that you're following the, the law. But but the the thing is, is that the for enforcement generally stops there. There's not a lot of um, there's no auditing generally, or you know, at least not of the small companies, small PI companies and things. Um, and what and what about consequences for violation? I mean, you know, we've had the whole Murdoch. Uh, thing in the UK where all the the private investigators are accessing um, very privileged information. So, what are the consequences if you violate? Um, I mean, the fines. Um, there, there can be fines for violating the DPAs. Um, uh, I, don't, I didn't. I didn't talk to anybody who who had gotten fined for that. Um, but but certainly that's their 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 teeth are you know the fines that they can impose. But what I started to say was so not only do you have to to register with get the different it, with your you know respective agency, but in theory, a subject can request the information about him or her um, as a result of your investigation. So you have a file on somebody, and in theory, they can come to you and say, "I want to look at my file." Mm-hmm. So, um, and and then uh, on top of that, there are certain laws. The laws in different places with regard to how long an investigation, a investigator can keep a file on somebody. So you're not supposed to be able to keep a file indefinitely. Um, in um, in France, for example, you're supposed to destroy your file as soon as you're done with the investigation. Interesting. But they they sort of they tolerate quote unquote investigators keeping their files for two or three years. Um, now, I, I, to my knowledge, I don't think that the toleration aspect, I don't think that, the to, that it actually is on the books that investigators can keep their laws for two or three years. It's just, a, it's just kind of an outcome of common sense and a lack of enforcement. Right. And, and the same thing is true when, when subjects, if subjects requested information about themselves. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of the investigators I talked to said, well, it's common sense that we wouldn't give them the information. But, um, and that's true. You know, obviously, it's common sense that you, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just turn over the results of your investigation to somebody. Um, but uh, but uh, the law really says something else. I mean, the law says that that you would have to turn it over if they asked. Right. And for that reason, a lot of investigators, or at least some of the ones I talked to, say, well, you know, to get around that, I don't keep the file, I just give them to the client. And, you know, and the clients, being an end user, aren't required to turn over the file. All right. You know, Phil, we have a caller. I think they're going to uh, join him onto the show, hopefully, in a second here. Great. Uh, hello? Steve, are you on yet? Okay, Steve? I know he's on. He's there someplace. 
Oh, I guess I'm sorry. I guess guess he just hung up. We were going to put him on. He had a question, but I guess he hung up. So okay. So um, just switching gears a little, just for a second here. I I know that uh, the United Kingdom is just passing their first law for PI licensing. Yeah, so that that's passed. It's supposed to take effect this year. I'm not sure exactly when. Um, which is really, you know, that's um, it's obviously a big deal for them. They've um, the UK has a long history of of private investigations. Their Association of British Investigators, for example, they they started in 1913, um, and uh, you know, people in the in the UK have been lobbying for. For a, for a licensing law for a long time. The people I talked to, the consensus was that they thought it was a good, a good idea. At least, you know, the established people thought it was a good idea. Um, but, right, the, the Levinson inquiry was really what, what, um, what put a lot of momentum on that. I'm sorry, the what? I, Say that again? Uh, the, the Levinson inquiry. Um, so there was an inquiry by uh, a guy named Lord Levinson there, which involved um, not only the news of the world um, blagging Blagging is what they call pretexting in, in London um, scandal, but but also um, there was an incident where the police were investigating this missing girl, who um, and a reporter paid a, an investigator to blag her voicemail, mm-hmm. and and it it's it ended up really messing up the police investigation because the police were able to determine when the last time the person somebody had called into the uh, voicemail, and so they assumed that the girl was alive when, in fact, she had actually uh, been kidnapped and she was raped and murdered. Mm-hmm. And so, the, as a result of that investigation, they really, you know, they really clamped down and they said, "Well, look, we have to have some sort of way of regulating these folks." And so, that's supposed to take effect this year. And um, do you think that'll be a game changer for them? Um, I think it'll be a really good thing. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but the, all the investigators I talk to um, really, we want to be regulated uh, to yeah, some extent. We want to, we want to be legitimized. We want people to, um, to know that we do good things, and, and we're okay with, um, we're okay with with, with paying a, a fee and, and then going to go in the background check and and, exactly. and even undergoing training and whatever else is required. You know, tell us what we need to do. But, um, but um, you know, in return, we want we would like. Um, some access to information, um, and I think that's the big—that's the big contradiction that's going on in Europe right now. Is that um, investigators are being asked to jump through all these hoops, but they don't, except with some, some exceptions, they, they're not really afforded any greater access to information than uh, just a normal European citizen. Yeah, and you know, and oh, and what licensing does for the public is it's it's a protection for the consumer. You know, they have a place to go to file a complaint. Something can happen. If some, you know, I mean, there are bad actors in every profession. There's no question. Absolutely. I mean, it's doctors, lawyers, it doesn't make any difference. You know, private investigators have their own segment of bad actors, unfortunately. Right. Um, but that licensing does allow some, some action to be taken if somebody is wronged. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so the, the law, as I understand it, um, is going to require... Um, uh, British investigators to have two years of experience. Uh, it's gonna, um, and, and then there's also gonna be a background check component too. So you can have a criminal record, have to have some experience, mm-hmm. and that's that's pretty analogous to, I would say, the average of uh, what the license requirements are in the U.S. So I think it brings it up to to where, to where we are at least. 
I'm, that's very good news. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And I know that the private investigators in the UK have worked long and hard to get this to make this happen. Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's, it's hard. I mean, as you as, as we know from you know, Colorado's struggles, for example. I mean, there's only there's only six states in the U.S. that don't have any licensing requirements right now. All this, there's some jurisdictions within those states that have some some requirements. But um, I mean, it was like two years ago, I think Colorado passed their um, their licensing law. It's a voluntary law, right? Um, but I think that that shows what what the will of the industry is: is that they're you know, they're they're willing to, to undergo some regulation, even if it's voluntary, because <laughs> it's something that they can point to to their clients and give them some. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, right now there's a lot of controversy going on about the 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 mandatory licensing um, yeah. bill that's going through uh, in Colorado. So yeah. we'll see where that falls out. Uh, yeah. We're, we're going to need to take an, one more break, Phil. We'll be right back. Okay. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Phil Becknell, who is a private investigator from Virginia uh, and licensed in several other states. And he's writing a book about the European Union and access to data. So, Phil... Kind of, would you summarize kind of where you're going with this and what, what you want to accomplish? Yeah, so, I mean, the premise of the book um, is that, you know, everything we just talked about, that that um, information is, you know, is, is bought and sold about us all the time um, and that private investigators in different places are obviously um, part of this part of this process. Um, it's It's essentially going to be about the legitimate role that investigators have in society and doing the investigations that we do for 
our clients for a myriad of different of different reasons, and um, and how um, when you when you try to cut us out of of the of the market for information, um, it has a tendency um, to um, to um, to do the opposite of what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. It, it, it tends to create a black market for information. Exactly. Um, one thing we didn't really talk about was you know um, some of the overtly illegal stuff that I heard about ways that people were gathering information. And I'm, I'm you know, you mentioned earlier about um, how how it, it certainly has helped me in my research to um, to be somebody who, who people know and to be an insider. Um, and so I don't want to I don't want to betray anybody's confidence. And I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons why I was able to get people to talk to me is because I'm not a journalist. Um, but, but, you know, uh, I did hear things about, about, uh, you know, using police sources for information and blagging and, and, mm-hmm. and other things that would be violations of the data, data protection act. And, and of course people do that for, um, I'm not condoning it, um, certainly, but I think that, I think that the pressure is on these investigators to, to get information for clients for reasons that they think are legitimate. And I think that when it, when it's, when it's all, when everything's illegal, um, it, it, it tends to put to put pressure on people to think that it's okay to skirt the law, right? And so it's going to be um, what I'm really interested in doing is is, is trying to legitimize the uh, the industry and and to, and to hopefully open up some doors for for investigators, not just in the UK and in Europe, um, but also you know something that, that that legislators and other people in the US who are interested in curtailing privacy can maybe point to as an example of um, of of uh, ways that we can be include, included. Well, you know, I, there's a general misunderstanding about who we are and what we do. You know, I mean, we're, we're not the people that are, you know, <laughs> installing listening devices in houses and things like that that is portrayed on TV. You know, without us, we are, there would be things that would go un, uninvestigated and there would be fraud and there would be all kinds of things that didn't meet the level of law enforcement investigation, but was a harm nevertheless. Oh, right. I mean, and that's, you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we, we, we all have, um, there, there are a million legitimate reasons to do investigations. And I think that most people, our clients certainly understand. I mean, when you, when, when a lawyer hires me to, to, to do something, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the courts. It's a, you know, it's a very clear, um, issue to be investigated, um, and I think that you know that's that's one perspective, and then and then there exists um, you know we're we're in a very data driven society, increasingly so, and and there's this there's this notion. I think it sounds really good to say, well, yeah, you know, I I own my own information. I should be able to own all my information, mm-hmm. and, and that would make society a better place. And and I think that that's a very um, I think it's a very romantic uh, notion, and I think it's appealing in some ways, um, but I think that. You, you have to you have to consider some of the legitimate reasons why there should be access to information, particularly for investigators. Well, and you can certainly see if you're not somebody that does what we do, investigation, that saying, "Well, I should be able to own my own information," makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it does on on some levels. It even makes sense to us. I mean, we we want to we also want to protect our own information, but at the same time, if you're in a situation where you are fighting claims against you that aren't true, whether it be civil claims, civil torts, or criminal cases, you need a method to defeat that. Right. 
and, and not only do you need a method, but I think you, you need an industry that is, is licensed, that's regulated, mm-hmm. that where there's associations that have uh, recognized codes of ethics, um, that, there's a, that there's a consensus on what's ethical and what's not ethical, and that these are debates that, 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 are, that, that people have within the industry. And I think you want, you want those types of people to be gathering the information. You want those types of people to be the ones with access. Exactly. Um, not criminals, not uh, identity thieves and other people that, you know, so it's just... Um, but we need to be in the picture. We need to be a legitimate, uh, a legitimate part of that. And yeah. I think my the That's basic right. point of my book is that I, I don't I don't think that, um, with some exceptions, um, I, I don't think that uh, that that um, the investigators in the EU are really being. Europe's still trying to work that out. Sure. <laughs> well, where, where they fit in the picture? You know, the U.S. is still trying to work that out. Frankly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, we work we work it out piecemeal. We work it out on on bill by bill. So you know, some bill gets passed, and, and this thing, Europe has filed, Europe has this overarching uh, privacy uh, privacy law. And the laws are different in every country, but but they're based on this uh, data protection directorate, which is uh, all encompassing. And they mm-hmm. they certainly have they've kind of they said this is how we see privacy. And the problem is, is that that doesn't really mesh with um doesn't leave any room or much room for uh, for doing legitimate investigations. Exactly, exactly right. Um, and, and yeah, we want, you know, we want, private investigators want rules to play by. You know, we certainly want to know what is legal, what is not legal, what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. And, of course, in the U.S., it varies state by state and county by county. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, I mean, you see it in the U.S., too. I mean, yeah, quite frankly, you, you see, like, um, there are gray areas in the U.S. I mean, there, there are gray areas of, and when, you come, when it comes to gathering certain types of information about certain techniques. Yeah. And, and most of the people that I know um, really try to stay on the right side of the gray area. Um, but, but there are people that will dance in between it. And, and I, I mean, my, my position is, you know, paint the areas white or paint them black, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just make it clear um, what's what, and, um, and, and, and we'll follow the rules. Uh, you know, but they, the rules exactly. should be reasonable. Um, so, um, you know, we have uh, worldwide listeners. So, if you, uh, if somebody wants to comment or give you some information, Phil, that uh, would be valuable for your book, how would they go about do that, doing that? Yeah, let me give you both my website um, and also my email address. Um, okay. So, my my firm is Denal Becknell and Wells Investigative Group, and you don't have to worry about that spelling that because I'll give you the web address. Um, it's www.denault.com, and that's D is in Delta, I is in India, N is in November, O is in Oscar, L is in Lima, T is in Tango.com. And my email address is my last name, which is Becknell, um, at Denault.com. And so that's B is in Bravo, E is in Echo, C is in Charlie, N is in November, E is in Echo, L is in Lima, at Denault.com. Very good. Well, I wish you much success with gathering this information. As I said at the beginning, this is a huge project. I can't even imagine. Um, it's so uh, all-encompassing. So I really wish you um, the best in getting this done. And I, I'm waiting to have it come out. Do you have a name yet for the book? I, I don't. It's, like I said, it's still a work in progress. Okay. And as far okay. as the work on it, I guess I'd say one thing is that I, I have gotten to travel to some really neat places and meet some fantastic people. So I'm really grateful for that. Absolutely, and you know, there's nothing like the uh, the uh, consortium of private investigators. A great group of people, really, and uh, so I, it's 
fun to be able to to meet people in other countries and find out what they're doing. So that's that's fabulous. Absolutely. Well, we're at the end of our show, Phil. Thank you so much. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. A good, again, good luck. And when you, you know, when something else happens, let me know, and I will announce the name of your book whenever Great. it is. Okay. Okay. I'll certainly let you know. All right. Very good. Um, and to those of you who are listening, if there's anybody interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact Sandra Rogers at Sandra Rogers, S-A-N-D-R-A dot Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at voiceamerica.com. She's my wonderful producer. And, of course, I have to mention the uh, engineering staff, Brad, Ryan, Keith, and all the guys that work uh, to keep us on the show. Thank you guys so much. Tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.